You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Welcome. It's Noah Rosenfarb, the author of Exit Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise from Freedom Business Advisors. And today our great guest is Ian Campbell. He's one of Canada's best-known business valuation experts. He's been advising business owners on valuation and transition planning for 45 years. And he recently put together his book called 50 Hurdles, Business Transition Simplified. So Ian, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and welcome you. Well, Noah, thank you very much for having me on the show. So why don't we start by telling me a little bit about the book, how did he get the idea to write it, and what made you invest the time and effort to put it out into the world? Well, as you said, my background has largely been giving uh, business valuation advice over a 40 or 45 year period now, principally in Canada, but often with uh, multinational uh, involvement, and I gave advice in many disputes involving families that were working on generational transition. And so while I didn't hold myself out to be a transition expert per se, I was involved with a great deal and observed a great deal of of good things and bad things in the transitions I I, I saw. In any event, about a year and a half or so ago, because I'm now retired from my practice, although I still do some high-end consulting work, I was invited to a transition seminar where there were five speakers, and I went uh, largely out of curiosity and interest. I walked out shaking my head because... What I heard was a whole lot of soft side debate and discussion by these five people in circumstances where what they were saying was not what I experienced as a practical matter in my practice. So from there, when I got back to my desk, I thought about it and I thought, I better read more of this transition literature than I have to date. And I began doing that. And I quickly realized that most people who write about transition think about it somewhat differently or appear to think about it somewhat differently, at least, than I do. And so I sat down with a blank piece of paper and I listed out and then subsequently organized by topic the hurdles that I know of and have experienced and observed that for some business families are barriers to entry in terms of generational transition. And I then spent quite a long time and quite a difficult time, frankly, writing 50 hurdles as a book, and 50 Hurdles is what I intend to be, and I would describe as a systematic roadmap and a reference that identifies and discusses hard transition issues. So that's generally the background as to why I did it, and and I've done it. I've, I've, I'm getting very positive reviews from the book, and uh, uh, where it, where it takes uh, takes me from here, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> so explain a little bit more about the what we might call the technical and quantitative issues versus the qualitative and communication style issues. Where do you think this cottage industry, as we both refer to it, is going and, and where might it be going in the wrong direction or in the right direction? Well, that's a question I want to think a little bit about before correctly responding. So first I would say 
After this book has came out, which is really I really got the first copies about three months ago, I started to get some very interesting feedback on the book that causes me to have confirmation that a great deal of the literature, and I think the advice in this area, is what I call soft side advice. One of the leading transition, recognized transition experts in Canada was a contributor to the book. I didn't know him a year and a half ago, found him out. He knew who I was. He was very helpful. And when I sent him the first draft of the book, he called me. He said, wow, he said, uh, chapter four is off the charts. He said, nobody in the transition business has ever raised this before. And I didn't believe him, frankly, because I'm not sure whether it ended up being chapter four or not. But I included in an early chapter in the book what I call the first business transition fundamental. And that business transition fundamental is you better know and continually review and be satisfied that your business is going to be viable as a going concern seven to 10 years out. Because if your business is not going to be viable, you're going to have nothing to generationally transition. So that's only one of a series of things that I have in the book that uh, I haven't really seen talked about, or at least not talked about in a concise way in other literature I've looked at. And I'd be happy to talk to you about that. You know, one of the things I would love for you to advise our listeners on is the three things that pretty much every owner should be thinking about when they're thinking about transition. And so I guess, you know, the first one is, hey, will this business be around? Is it likely to survive? Speak a little bit more to that and maybe an example of an owner that, you know, you had advised or consulted with that either they found out that their business was unlikely to survive the next decade or they had to put in place some strategies and tactics to make sure it would survive. Okay, so you've asked me a number of things there. So the first thing I think you ask is, what are three things that every owner should be doing now, in essence, to ultimately prepare for a transition? And if I've got that right, uh, as I think about it, I actually think there are more than three things that would be on my list. And probably I wouldn't start, actually, with the first step that I've already said is the first step, being the, the, the issue of whether the business is going to be around as a going concern. The first thing that I would tell an owner if I was sitting with the owner, I suppose I am sitting with a bunch of owners indirectly right now, is it's really important you understand that in irrespective of your age, the importance of actively thinking about transition now as opposed to postponing it. And I know most people find it difficult to deal with, and at least in my experience they have, and, and, and that they got to get past that. And the reason they have to get past that is because of what I consider to be, and I spend a lot of time studying macroeconomics these days, our new economic normal and what's going on with globalization. And I think that those are issues, particularly after the 2008 financial crisis, that just weren't as high and didn't need to be quite as high on business owners' uh, agendas as I think they have to be today. So that's the first. Secondly, the first thing is the importance of of currently of thinking currently about transition and not postponing. The second thing is that I think everybody who is in this thing has to understand that advisors walk in, and it's really easy to be an advisor. Uh, I, I was one for 40 years. You walk in, you tell people what you think they ought to do. You go back in six months. If, the, if it's been successful, you're a hero. And if it hasn't been successful, you kind of say, well, you didn't exactly execute it the way I strategized it for you. So I'm a great believer in, uh, in business owners thinking a lot for themselves. And it's really important that those owners understand that if they're going under, to undertake generational transition, and there are obviously two kinds of transition. You can transition a business by selling it in an arm's length transaction, 
or you can transition the business, both its ownership and its management, which are quite different transitional things, generationally or attempt to do that. If you go that route, generational planning has to be systematic to create the greatest possibility of success. And it has to be systematic from an umbrella level so that the soft side transition advisors who who basically largely, I think, say, uh, communicate better and you'll have a better chance at generational transition, don't, aren't, are not where my headspace is not there. My headspace says that a transition advisor is kind of like the top of an umbrella and underneath that umbrella are about 15 different specialty disciplines that need to be called on to properly transition business and it's not cheap and it's very time consuming and it's very hard work and it's got to be something that's done almost day over day over day. The next thing to consider is that I can say these things at age 72 because I'm, I'm really not in practice today. I'm not trying to build a business, not trying to build an accounting advisory business. So, so I'll tell you that, that they need to recognize that all transition advisors are not created equal and they got to go out and find the best of the best, particularly if their business is of any size. Two other things is number one, that they ought to really, owners in particular, ought to really think hard about the pool of arm's length retired executives and the pool of business owners who have sold in their particularly relevant to their own industry, obviously, and seriously consider uh, tapping that pool to be advisors, arm's length advisors to them and their family in their business and transition process. The second thing is to really, really focus on how globalization is going to affect or is affecting their business. And for some businesses, you know, globalization doesn't affect their business very much at all, and it's not a big deal. But globalization and the new economic normal will affect everyone's business because it's going to affect tax rates, it's going to affect regulation, it's going to affect any number of things, and owners need to be very conscious today, more so, I think, than 10 years ago, as to just what might impact their business, both positively and negatively. So maybe share a little bit about your experience in practice as a valuation expert and the role that you played in helping business owners create value and how you see the valuator's expertise coming in handy to owners that are seeking a transition. Okay. And once again, some of the things, if I were listening instead of talking here, I'm cynical to begin with, but if I were listening, I'd be saying, who is this person? All they're doing is promoting business valuation work. So I'm going to just once again say, I'm not a business valuation expert looking for files. In fact, I'm specifically not doing that. So hopefully my comments can be seen with a little more objectivity than they otherwise might. First, I have always seen, frankly, periodic independent business valuations as a form of scorecard. So if you're going to play a game, you want to know whether you're winning or losing. So I think periodic independent business valuations are comparatively inexpensive, or should be if they're properly structured, particularly after the first one. And I think that's something that uh, business owners ought to think about more than they likely do. Secondly, and this is, I think, really important, is that bluntly, without continual growth in business value, business transition options become limited over time. One of the things that I don't see too many people identifying, but I, I've talked about at length in 50 hurdles, and in fact, have given some graphic evidence of it, is that families inherently grow in numbers. They compound as children beget children beget children. And unless there is a serious pruning strategy adopted, that is cutting some family members out of ownership, 
the business just simply has to grow in order to provide ongoing liquidity opportunity through dividends and other uh, liquidity opportunities as it goes along for capital. So it's uh, extremely important that the business value grows over time and that there are independent business valuations done to help monitor that. Next point, experienced business valuation experts can help business owners learn and apply business value drivers. Now, I'm a great believer in book-learned experts being differentiated from experts with operating experience. The experts with operating experience are the ones that I'm interested in, or if I'm a business owner, or I'm interested in those with book learning uh, as valuation experts who know enough to know that they need to call operating experts in to help them from time to time. So that's the next thing. You want to get the best experts, irrespective of whether it's business valuation or anything else, to do work with you. Two other things that are not unimportant. One is that a business valuation expert can review shareholder agreement wordings that in turn can help avoid shareholder disputes around the valuation and puts and calls and sale options in the agreement. Probably as much work early on in my valuation career was generated by badly worded uh, shareholders agreements that did not properly structure or set out how disputes were going to be dealt with and what the proper value terms were and how they were best defined. So that's a point that's also important. And then lastly, business valuation experts ought to be able to help their clients identify if there are likely strategic purchasers for the business that would enjoy synergies uh, post-acquisition and pay more than would a buyer who did not enjoy post-acquisition synergies. And that's something, curiously, Noah, that I've actually received pushback from because I talk about that at length, and, I, and in the book I wrote, I, I, list not, I not only talk about the importance of strategic buyers, but I list ways to determine what the strategies are, or what the, sorry, what the synergies are, and I, talk, I list, I don't know, 25 different types of synergies and talk in general terms about how some of them might be quantified. Well, I see transition advisors, uh, not a whole lot, but some who have come back and said, like, there are no strategic buyers, or they're impossible to identify, or it's impossible to quantify them so you can't take them into account. And I, I just don't agree with any of that. And when you're doing valuations, are you taking that into account or when you were doing valuations or, or you're saying just from an owner's standpoint, it's important to know that the valuation uh, value that's issued by the appraiser is typically not accounting for that additional strategic value that might be generated in a transfer or a transaction with a strategic buyer. Okay, two questions. In my consulting practice, when I was giving opinions, I can only speak of the Canadian environment. I can't speak to the U.S. environment or, or the environment of any other jurisdiction where someone might live that might be listening. But in Canada, it has long been the case that if there were no, if there, if there are no evident strategic buyers, and for example, you're doing an estate planning valuation, that you typically would not take any strategic value into account in determining the value of the business. However, for sure, you would qualify your report as an expert to say you weren't doing that. However, if there are evident strategic purchasers, that's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. And if there are evident strategic purchasers, I believe you have to at least attempt to take them into account or make a very bold statement that if the business is put on the market, it might likely fetch a price higher than the one you're attributing to it. Yeah, my, you know, I used to be a testifying expert on issues related to valuation 
primarily in the divorce courts. And in there, they had no interest in strategic buyers. It was only fair market value. And in New Jersey, there was no discount for lack of marketability. And it was very interesting because, you know, oftentimes that created an unfairness between two people that were litigating this issue. So it's interesting to hear that in, in Canada, maybe the standards are a little bit different. Well, so, I, not, matrimonial law in Canada is very, I started out writing this book knowing, you know, a reasonable amount about matrimonial law, but I didn't ever give valuation opinions in matrimonial matters. And there was, there was a specific reason I didn't do that, which had to do with the way value is defined in matrimonial law in Canada. But setting that aside, I started out writing this book thinking that matrimonial law in uh, generational transition planning was important. I came away from writing the book thinking it, it wasn't important. It was super important. And I talked to some very senior judges, matrimonial lawyers in, in the biggest cities in Canada, and couldn't get answers that satisfied me that I could come up with anything other than as a piece of advice, go get the best matrimonial lawyer you have if you're doing uh, generational transition planning and get their advice based on the jurisprudence as it exists at the time you're doing it. Do you have a predisposition to thinking generational transfers are better or worse than an outright sale? I have a predisposition to believe that generational transition may be possible or more possible from generation one to generation two, but generational transition beyond generation two, I think becomes more and more difficult, except that if a family is successful at it, and I dealt with many families that were in their third, fourth, and even sixth generation, the task becomes easier as the generations progress. And my belief as to why that is, because that's what I observed, is that uh, their corporate governance becomes better and better and better. And the bigger the business becomes, because to get to subsequent generations, I believe and observe the businesses have to get very large. And if the businesses get very large, they have more money to invest in any number of things. They tend to, at least the ones I observed, tend to, to start to begin to behave much like a public company. And they tend to uh, separate very well ownership from management. I suppose what I'm really saying to you is that, that if, if you can get past the second generation to the third generation and you've got a business that is growing at least in the same uh, way that the family numbers are growing, that you have a better and better chance to improve your corporate governance and end up with an ongoing generational family plan. But I think getting through from generation one to generation two isn't as hard as getting from generation two to generation three. And I think once you get past generation three, it probably gets easier again. And I think that goes back to what you said originally about what owners should be thinking about. When third-generation businesses are, are operating, I would say they are thinking regularly about long-term family transition, which you said at the outset is kind of the, the key factor in making sure their success, and it becomes part of their operating DNA to address these issues of ownership and management and cash flow and distributions. You know, with, it's just part of the organization. Would you agree? I do absolutely agree with you, Noah. I think it's an evolutionary process and that the evolution gets easier if you, can get, if you can get past the tough part. Well, I think with the time that we have left, you know, given all the years of experience that you've been working with owners and, and your experience writing the book, I'd love it if you could share some stories that you think would be valuable to our listeners, whether they're successes or failures or interesting bits of advice that you had given over the years. Just open up and tell us 
some of your experiences that you think would be valuable for others to know about? Maybe maybe the thing I did that I'm absolutely the most pleased with is I was involved. I got involved with a family that had a very large business. There were two brothers and four sisters who owned it. They uh, had the son-in-law of one of the two brothers who was the CEO, and uh, they got into for reasons that were partly their issue and partly what happened in the environment. They got into financial and operating difficulty. And they needed three things. They needed an equity injection. They needed to replace the family member who was the CEO. They weren't all convinced of it. And they needed to find a new president. And I worked with them through a sequence of events that, first of all, helped them put some new equity in place. And then most important of all was the brother, who was the, uh, the father-in-law of the CEO, came into me one morning because I was actually in their office pretty much every day for several months helping them. And he said, you know, I've concluded that Sam, obviously not his real name, but that Sam just can't stay on. And I said, well, if you've concluded that, here's what you ought to do. You ought to go down to his office and tell him that. And then we'll figure out where we're going to go from there. And frankly, much to my surprise, he got up out of his chair and went and did exactly that. Came back to see me in 15 minutes and said, well, now we need a new, a new CEO. And uh, it took a couple of months to find an arm's length new CEO who had run a, a major division of a multinational, and he had equity to work with. He didn't knew the business. He turned it all around, and that business flourished, and it was uh, sold to an arm's-length strategic buyer a few years later before the death of any of the uh, six siblings. So that was, that was a story of, I think, really good success, and it was, it was frankly a story of a fair amount of courage on the part of, of one of the family members. And uh, the neat thing about it was that the family members all stayed in agreement. A very rare thing to happen. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the day, was the former CEO family member satisfied with the benefits he received from this sale to a third party? I would think he was because he was an indirect beneficiary of it. And uh, curiously, I saw him at a funeral, one of the sisters, and he couldn't have been nicer to me and told me that what had happened was what should have happened Although probably the day it happened, he didn't think that way. Hmm. Unfortunately, that's the case most of the time. And, you know, that's wonderful because I think when owners have courage to make decisions that are uncomfortable, but they know that it's the right thing to do, that's what leads to success. And there was a great quote by the uh, CEO of Evernote who said, you know, there's a difference between a difficult decision and an uncomfortable decision. In the difficult decision, we don't know what to do. In the uncomfortable decision, we know what to do. We just don't want to do it. You know, I think it probably sounds like the dad had a, uh, an uncomfortable decision, but he made the right choice. So what else can you share with us about some of your experience? Maybe some advice that you had that was uncovered in evaluation that led to you know, unlocking a lot of value or maybe a hurdle that you had struggled with with a, a client and you were able to jump over it. I can give you an example, not exactly along the lines you're asking, but I'm very interested in the pushback I'm getting uh, or seem to be getting on this issue of whether strategic buyers exist. So here's an example of something that happened. Quite a long time ago, a father and a son, the father being getting on in years, but still active, the son being 50 or so, came to my office, and they came to my office in, for, for a valuation. They wanted, they wanted to talk to me about engaging my firm to do a valuation for them. And I sat with them for about 15 minutes and learned in that time that they, they actually owned three businesses. 
They owned two of the businesses. One business was substantial. One business was much larger than the other of the first two. And they were largely in the same area of business, same industry, same type of products, but they weren't competitive with each other. The third business was not big, and it was an entirely different business, but it was profitable. And family members owned, there were other family members involved, and they owned shares in all three businesses. So after talking to these people for about an hour and talking to them about why they wanted to operate the largest business on a continuing basis and where it was going to go in light of the competitive environment they were in, and this was, by the way, before all the globalization and 2008 financial problems, quite some time before that, I rather concluded that it would be smart to talk to them about whether they would be interested or had contemplated selling the largest business because there were evident strategic buyers for it. And after we talked for maybe another half hour, they not only identified who the strategic buyers would be, but uh, who within the management of each of or ownership of each of those strategic buyers ought to be contacted if they decide to sell. So after a couple more meetings, it was determined that they thought, because I, let me step back. I believe advisors advise, they don't make decisions. So I told them the pros and cons as I best I could of what I saw as the alternatives available to them. And they came back and they said, you know, we've thought, this, we've thought about this and we now think, contrary to when we first walked into your office, that our absolute best strategy is to sell the largest business and retain the two smaller businesses and build those to the benefit of the family. And that way we diversify our risk. And so the net result was that uh, the largest business was sold through a competitive sales process that worked out very well for the family and I know for the, for the per- ultimate purchaser. And the family retained the two smaller businesses under continued family ownership. And as best I know, and I periodically hear, not as an advisor, just as, uh, as a friend almost, that uh, they're both flourishing and they both provide family members with capital value and annual dividends. So that's another story of... Uh, you know, the work that, that actually worked out differently in that case than they, the people who came into my office first thought. But at the end of the day, they, they left doing something else and are very happy to have done it. That's great. And how about the flip side? You know, where did someone go wrong? And what did they do? What were the results? And what should they have done? Most of the things that I involved, was involved in where things went wrong were there was a, a serious dispute that was litigated. And... I would say that, and I was involved in a large number of them, and, and you know, without making more of it than it is, many of the more substantial ones in Canada. And I would say that, broadly speaking, the people involved in those disputes were all good people. They were all nice people. But they couldn't, or they, I shouldn't say they couldn't, they didn't initially, in most cases, deal as logically as they might have or they were dealing with agreements that had been generated for them that didn't satisfy those that satisfy their purposes in the end when and were caught up in in, in badly worded agreements and there was as much of that as there was uh, uh, you know what I would describe as emotional turmoil but in the end most of those circumstances almost certainly ended up as best I could tell with uh, you know the usual thing that happens in a disagreement which is if it's done right, neither party's 100% satisfied at the end. Well, uh, for those people that want to get in touch with you, I know they could visit 50hurdles.com. That's 50hurdles.com. And a link to that website will also be on the Divestopedia website. Where else might people get in touch with you? Phone, email, LinkedIn. What's a good way? 
Well, if someone wanted to phone me, they could they could reach me at uh, this number, 905-274-0610. They could send me an email. My email address is iCampbell at ircpost.com. Great. And you had mentioned some LinkedIn articles that you've been writing. I'm assuming it's Ian Campbell right on LinkedIn. People could find you that way as well. Well, actually, if they wanted to find me on LinkedIn, they would have to find me at Ian and then my middle initial R Campbell because Ian Campbell, while it's not as common perhaps as John Smith, is not with people with a Scots background that uncommon. Hmm. Great. Well, uh, Ian, I want to thank you for coming on the show today, sharing your expertise, and more importantly, taking the time to put together 50 Hurdles because I, I do believe it is a wonderful resource for professionals and the clients that we advise to take a look at some of the issues and challenges they might face in a transition. So thank you again for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, to all our listeners, make sure to join us again. Please don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share us on your social media sites. We always appreciate getting new listeners and hearing your feedback. Everyone, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.